Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They sanctified it, set up its doors. They sanctified it even to the tower of Hamia, to the tower of Hananel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built. Next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles didn't put their necks to the Lord's work. Joadah, the son of Passiah, and Meshullam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and set up its doors and its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jadon the Meronathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, repaired the residence of the governor beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel the son of Harhaiah, goldsmiths, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs, and they fortified Jerusalem even to the wide wall. Next to them, Rephiah the son of Hur, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Judiah the son of Harumaf, made repairs across from his house. Next to him, Hattush the son of Hash-Benaiah, made repairs. Malkijah the son of Harum and Hashab the son of Pahath-Moab, repaired another portion and the tower of the furnaces. Next to him, Shalom the son of Halahesh, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, he and his daughters made repairs. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it and set up its doors, its bolts and its bars, and 1,000 cubits of the wall to the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem, repaired the dung gate. He built it and set up its doors, its bolts and its bars. Shalon, the son of Kol Jose, the ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the spring gate. He built it and covered it and set up its doors, its bolts and its bars, and the wall of the pool of Shalah by the king's garden, even to the stairs that go down from David's city. After him, Nehemiah the son of Azbuk, the ruler of half the district of Bethzur, made repairs to the place opposite the tombs of David, and to the pool that was made, and to the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites, Rahim the son of Bani, made repairs. Next to him, Hashabiah, the ruler of half the district of Keilah, made repairs for his district. After him, their brothers, Bavai, the son of Henadad, the ruler of half the district of Keilah, made repairs. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the ruler of Mizpah, repaired another portion across from the ascent to the armory at the turning of the wall. After him, Barak the son of Zabai earnestly repaired another portion from the turning of the wall to the door of the house of Eliashib the high priest. After him, Merimoth the son of Uriah the son of Hakoz repaired another portion from the door of the house of Eliashib even to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the plain, made repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs across from their house. After them, Azariah the son of Maasiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his own house. After him, Binuai the son of Henadad repaired another portion 
from the house of Azariah to the turning of the wall and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the turning of the wall and the tower that stands out from the upper house of the king, which is by the court of the guard. After him, Pediah, the son of Parash, made repairs. Now the temple servants living in Ophel to the place opposite the water gate toward the east and the tower that stands out. After him, the Tekoites repaired another portion opposite the great wall that stands out and to the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, everyone across from his own house. After them, Zadok the son of Emir made repairs across from his own house. After him, Shemaiah the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. After him, Hananiah the son of Shelemiah and Hanan the sixth son of Zalaf repaired another portion. After him, Meshullam the son of Berechiah made repairs across from his room. After him, Malkajar, one of the goldsmiths to the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, made repairs opposite the gate of Hamifkad, and to the ascent of the corner. Between the ascent of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. So a chapter like that's um, interesting and boring all at once. It's interesting because you realise, wow, a lot of people worked on that wall. And all that's listed here are kind of like the leaders of the different sections. Presumably there were heaps of people helping each of those leaders. You also realise that there was, it was detailed. They worked together, um, but it's boring on, on the other hand because you don't know who any of these people are. You know, their names, uh, don't even know if I pronounced them right. <laughs> um, but what I think we learned from that is, wow, they worked together to get this wall up. Now, um, as we go reading through Nehemiah, um, it's, this chapter almost seems like it was added in here later. Like it's, it's definitely a part of the story, but it's like it, it feels like right now that the wall's gone up. But as we keep reading the story, you realize the wall didn't, hasn't gone up yet. There's a process here. So this is kind of like a summary of the building of the wall that's been added in here at chapter three. It could easily have been put later on in the book of Nehemiah. It's just kind of like out of order, uh, so to speak. But, you know, the lesson is that we all must work together to put the wall up. So if any one person has a burden for God's, for, for the city of God, for God's people, uh, you know, you've got to pass that burden on to others and together we work to put up the wall. It's a huge, huge job for any one individual to do this and, in fact, not possible. Nehemiah could not have built the entire wall to this entire city of Jerusalem on his own. It couldn't happen. And the reason for this is because the wall actually is our love for one another. So the Bible says in 2 Peter, it says that you are living stones being built together. So, um, yeah, we're being built together to be a temple, but we're also the wall. Like it's our lives and the way we love one another joined together that is the wall. So any one person on their own cannot be a wall because no one person is a stone big enough to go around everything. The, you know, the city isn't a city on its own. It's a city because of everyone. And so the building of the wall requires the building of our lives together, our love for one another increasing. No one can bring that about on their own. But people can carry the burden for it and we can speak to others and we can pray for others. And together, as the church becomes what it's supposed to be, the wall goes up. Now, in this wall here in Jerusalem, 
uh, it mentions all these gates. So there were, I counted them, 10 of them. Some commentators said nine. I don't know why they said nine, because I counted 10. I just went through and, you know, control F, gate, go through and count them all. There was a fish gate, a sheep gate, the old gate, the valley gate, the dung gate, the spring gate, the water gate, the horse gate, the east gate, and the gate of Hamifkad. Definitely 10. <laughs> so not sure where they get nine from. Um, but it's, it's interesting, um, you know, they always put, give these gates names. Uh, in Jerusalem today, like I, I looked up modern city of Jerusalem, and it, they've got gates there that have got names as well, but not the same names as these ones. And in the time of Jesus, Jesus was in the city of Jerusalem, and there were gate names as well, and some of them were the same and some of them were different. So, for example, when Jesus was coming and going, there was a dung gate, same as here, but there were other gates with different names, like the King's Gate, the Golden Gate, uh, see if I have it written down here, um, the Damascus Gate, Herod's Gate, the Jaffa Gate, the Lion Gate, the New Gate. So those were some of the names of the gates in the time of Jesus, but what we've just talked about are the gates in the time of Nehemiah. So the city wasn't torn down or anything between now and Jesus, but it's just that as time goes on, People give things new names. Herod also came along and did a lot of repairs. He may have put in new gates, closed other ones. So things change. And so um, all of this is very interesting. Now, there are a lot of Bible preachers who have made something out of these gates. And, um, for example, the Sheep Gate apparently was called the Sheep Gate because it was very close to where the temple was, and that's where they would bring the sheep in for the sacrifices. So that's where the name comes from, Sheepgate. And um, so some Bible teachers have said, you know, that's a picture of our worship. You know, we bring our sacrifices to the Lord. So you, you can certainly spiritualize this whole chapter by looking at the meaning of all the gates. For example, the fish gate was near the fish markets. And that's where, you know, people from all over the land would come with their catch of fish because there was no lake or ocean near Jerusalem. So they have to bring their fish from somewhere else bring it through the fish gate to the markets. And so Bible preachers would say, all right, that's a symbol of the harvest and evangelism because we've been told to be fishers of men. The dung gate, you know, that's where they would take the rubbish out of the city and throw it away. So that's a symbol of cleansing and holiness, getting rid of things. The spring gate, it's a symbol of freshness bursting up within us. So Bible preachers have found all sorts of meanings in these gates and um, I didn't really spend a lot of time going into that, but I can see how in the city of God, not you know the, the historical city of God, but in the city of God, which is the church, I can see that all these things exist. There, there should be worship in the church. There should be harvest and evangelism. There should be cleansing and holiness. So there's certainly something can be made out of all of this, although I haven't spent much time on it. I do want to talk about briefly the Golden Gate before we finish this chapter. So the Golden Gate was a gate that was in the city of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. Uh, now that city of Jerusalem was destroyed and uh, Jerusalem has been rebuilt again and Jerusalem has another gate that's also called the Golden Gate. So there are some people that really believe that you know when Jesus was going into Jerusalem uh, you know, to get ready for Passion Week, you know, so this is, you know, the Palm Sunday riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. He comes into Jerusalem and there are people, um, Bible commentators and others who believe that Jesus entered in through the Golden Gate. Now, we've temporarily left Nehemiah behind just to make this point because 
the subject of gates has kind of put us, reminded me to say this other stuff. And I don't know whether in the whole Bible this will ever have another chance to be talked about. And um, so there are a lot of people who believe that Jesus rode in through the Golden Gate on Palm Sunday to get ready for Passion Week. And they believe that when Jesus comes again at the end of the world, he will ride in once again through the Golden Gate. Now, I, I think this is, is not correct. Uh, and I've got to say it because it's an idea that's out there. Um, now, they, this particular type of thinking is what you call premillennial. And they believe that Jesus will come back. There are three different millennial views, roughly speaking, premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. And premillennial, they believe that Jesus, when he comes back, is coming to sit on an actual throne, like an actual chair, like I'm sitting on one now. And he's going to sit in Jerusalem on this chair and he's going to physically be in charge of an actual kingdom for a thousand years. That's called premillennial. So they believe that Jesus' return is pre or before the thousand years of millennial reign. So they think that thousand years of millennium are going to be in Jerusalem He'll be physically here. He'll be reeling on a throne. And a lot of a lot of these groups think that Jesus is going to enter through the Golden Gate to do that. And uh, it's an interesting idea because the Golden Gate was closed. It's still there in the city of Jerusalem. You can Google it for a picture. But the Golden Gates are these two massive gates and they've been sealed shut and they've been shut for at least 800 years. I'm pretty sure that they were shut earlier and then Richard the Lionheart in one of the Crusades opened them up and then after that, the Muslims came along and shut them up again, something like that. And they've been shut. And so the theory goes that when Jesus returns, the golden gates will be open and he'll ride in just like he did on Palm Sunday and set up his throne. Um, so I've got to say that that's not correct. <laughs> and I know there's probably, I'll have some premillennial friends out there that, that might disagree. And that's okay. We can disagree about it. Um, but I would like to suggest that Jesus is actually on his throne right now. That the idea of Jesus coming to earth to reign on an actual physical throne for a thousand years is confusing what the kingdom of God is. So, you know, when Jesus was here, he said the kingdom of God is near. You remember he said that? He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And, <laughs> and then he'd say things like, the kingdom of God is among you. And then when Jesus was being, um, you know, on trial with Pilate, Pilate says, you are a king then. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus said things about kingdoms and all of them give us the sense that the kingdom already started way back then because it was near and they give us the sense that the kingdom is not of this world. So my, my firm belief is that, yeah, Jesus is a king. He's ruling on a throne. But see, that's what the scriptures already tell us he's doing. It tells us right now in the book of Ephesians and other places that he's seated above at the right hand of the Father. He's already on a throne and his kingdom's already in existence and we are already his subjects. So I think that there's just a bit of confusion about the nature of the kingdom. And some people think it hasn't really started yet and he's got to come back and set up a throne and, and get this kingdom going. No, I think it's already going <laughs> and we're in the kingdom and we're his subjects and he's our Lord and we're serving him and he's on the right hand of the Father. And um, so that would be what you would call uh, an amillennial perspective that says the thousand years isn't a actual thousand years and the kingdom of heaven is, it's already underway right now. 
That's the amillennial position, which uh, the majority of Christians in the world do believe that. This is all your Catholics, your Anglicans, your more traditional denominations will, will lean that way, and certainly we do here as well. And I think it's more powerful, the fact that Christ is already on the throne. There already is a kingdom, and we can pray to him. It's powerful. Now, you remember in the last chapter, Nehemiah, he was you know, cupbearer to the king, and the king noticed his distressed state and said, what do you want? And then gave him permission to go rebuild the walls. That fits perfectly into an amillennial uh, situation where we are the servants of the king. We have a king right now on the throne. We're supposed to be burdened with prayer so that the king will hear our request and the king will grant us the permission. So it's, it's in this process that we rule and reign in God's kingdom, that we put matters in order because the king directs us to do so. So Lord, thank you for this chapter, chapter three of Nehemiah. And I pray, Lord, that your rule and your reign would increase and be extended in the world through us, your people. And it does say that your rule will be extended through Zion, the church. So I thank you, Lord, for these scriptures and many more. And I pray, Lord, you'd build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail in Jesus' name. Amen.